And no, I'm not moving. <laughs> Our oldest daughter, Tara, and, and Jada and Jordan are here this morning. They're moving to Liberal. And so we moved them from Wichita yesterday, and they're going to be moving into a very special house. Uh, not mine. <laughs> they're going to be moving into Ellen Way's house. Belinda and Leonard have consented to let her lease it from them, and so we're excited for them. And just said that because uh, we have to move some of that stuff in there this afternoon, and if any of you get bored with football or with napping or <laughs> anything of that nature, we would certainly welcome your help. But we're excited about Tara and her family moving here. And so we are in part three today of our sermon series. And, and again, let me just emphasize the importance of next Sunday. I'd like to see a whole bunch of veterans here next Sunday. I, you know, uh, veterans and law enforcement officers, uh, can I, just, can I just go out on the edge here and say I think it's shameful that we have relegated some of them to the, the place that we have? They are here for us. They are here to protect. They are here to serve. And I know that there are instances where perhaps, um, you know, in the heat of battle, something's happened that may not be suitable for someone in their position. But for the most part, 99% of the time, we need to show our love and support for them, amen? And I think it's important that we as a church do that. So next Sunday, be here, and boy, even, even having said that, having potluck afterwards, it doesn't get any better than that now. Come on, so be here next Sunday. Come expecting. It's going to be a great day, and I've prepared a special message for, for Heroes Sunday, so I want to see all of you here. For the past couple of weeks, however... We've been talking about how good God is. Is he still good to you? All the time. I have another question, though, for you to consider this morning. When we talk and when we speak about God being good, does your belief that God is good come from the fact that he's been good to you? Or does it come from the fact that even though you may not have experienced his goodness in recent days, he's still good? Now, the reason I ask it that way, in all honesty, most people in the world today would answer that question based on whether or not God has been good to them lately. Um, it's sad, but it's also too true that we live in a world where people's opinions, and not just those about God, but, but about us and everyone is, in general, is based on what have you done for me lately. And if you've been good to me lately, or if you've blessed me lately, then you're good. If not, not quite so much. Um, have you ever wanted something really bad? Really bad. And you didn't get it only to figure out sometime later down the road that it was really a good thing that you didn't get it. I've had that happen several times over the course of my life. And the only thing that I can determine is there must have been someone really good looking out for me. And that was God. The point I'm trying to make is that God is good whether or not we are aware of or even agree with his goodness. 
he is still good. By his very nature, he is good. Is it possible that we also tend to sometimes see God's goodness in someone else's life, but not so much in our own? We've all known certain people in our lives who seem to have been born with that proverbial rabbit's foot around their neck. You know, people that, for whom it seems that everything that they touch turns to gold. We, we pawn it off as, well, they're just lucky. Or, tragically but truly, we often think that God has shown them some kind of preferential favor over us. Let me tell you what the Bible says about that. Leonard put Acts 10, 34 up there. The Bible says in Acts 10, 34, Peter began to speak. He says, I really don't understand. I really understand that God doesn't show favoritism. Now go to Romans chapter uh, number, what is it? Chapter number 2, verse 11. There is no favoritism with God. All those who sin that without the law will also perish without the law, and all those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be declared righteous. So when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts will either accuse or excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. Friends, we are going to be judged without partiality, without favoritism, by a just and an honest, good God. He doesn't play favorites. Goodness, at least a part of his goodness, is that he doesn't show favoritism. What this entire discussion that I've just introduced to you this morning boils down to is that we we have this tendency to define this idea of goodness in different ways, from different perspectives, and even from differences in experience. But I don't want us to make the mistake this morning in believing that God is good regardless of what type of qualifier you want to attach to the word good. He is good, period. Just get that settled in your mind. Whether you agree with it, whether you've experienced it, whether you have seen it in someone else's life more than yours, does not change the fact that God is good. So why then do we often believe that God has shown more of his goodness to others than what he's shown to us? That's what I want to deal with this morning in my message that I've entitled, Envy is Not Pretty. Envy is Not Pretty. The answer to that question that I just asked Does it sometimes seem that God has shown his goodness to others more than he's shown it to us? It does have a definitive answer. Since God doesn't play favorites, and since luck is apparently brought about by chance rather than through our own actions, the answer to the question has to be within us. If we have that feeling that God is better to someone else than he's been with us, then it's probably a problem within us called Envy. 
and envy is not pretty. Now, let me lighten things up a little bit for you if I can. I love music. I love all music, almost every type of music. If you look through my CD collection or through my iTunes app on my telephone, you will find some contemporary Christian, you'll find some old hymns, you'll find some classic rock, you will find some Broadway tunes, and you will even find some Beethoven classical music. I love music. I like 70s and 80s rock and roll. Any 70s and 80s fans here? There we go. (laughs) I'm not that old, Gary. Walked into that one, didn't you? I like the Beatles. I like Chicago. I like Michael W. Smith. I like Carrie Underwood. I like Mercy Me. I like Lady Antebellum. And I also like Beethoven. I love music. Music was a huge part of my growing up years. I can, to this day, I'll just see how many, the rest of you have this going on in your life. I can tell you this to this day, when a certain song comes on the radio, particularly if it's from the 70s or 80s, I can tell you what I was doing at a certain time when that song played back when I was on the farm. I was thinking here not too long ago when a song came on, and I can't, it just slipped my mind what it was. But a certain song came on, and I thought I was in a certain field putting anhydrous on prior to wheat planting when that song came on. Any of you, the rest of you, have that happen? They're impactful. Music is impactful. Uh, I can remember when those 70s and 80s songs come on in particular, I can remember almost every word to every song. Because I had the radio playing on the, in that tractor cab, and, and I'd hear those songs over and over, day after day. Now, I can't remember what I was doing this time yesterday, but I can remember the words to those great songs of the 70s and 80s. It was a huge part of what got me through high school music was. I was a good student, but I could have been a much better student. Uh, The problem was that I had too much other stuff on my mind, mostly a blonde-haired girl who was a year older than I was at that time, but uh, I said that because she loved music and I loved music. I still do. I, I loved singing in the school choir. I loved playing my trumpet in the band. No, I don't play it any longer. I don't have the lit for it or the wind to play it anymore. Now, some of you, that would surprise that I don't have any more wind to do that, but I loved doing all of that stuff. You probably don't know this, but Satana High School, where I attended high school, had a tremendous band program during my high school years. We were invited to march in the Rose Bowl Parade in Los Angeles, California during my sophomore year. We weren't able to do that, but just getting the invitation was an honor. I was in marching band. I was in pep band. I was in concert band. I was in jazz band. We even made an album of our jazz band that I still have in my record collection to this day. I sang in the, in the school choir. I sang solos at music festivals and along with being in more ensembles than I care to remember. And I was hoping he'd be here this morning, but I don't see him anywhere. It's interesting for you to know, and you need to remember this for the next time you see him, that one of those ensembles that I sang in had featured me as a tenor and our own Donald Barr as a bass singer. 
He's got a tremendous bass voice, in case you have never heard him sing. One of the things that I have never been able to understand, however, given my love of music, is why I can't play the piano. I really have no excuse whatsoever for not knowing how to play the piano. I wish so much that you could have heard my mom while she was still able to play. Uh, I wish you could have heard her play the piano and the organ. My mom received a piano from her uncle in 1926 when she was four years old. We still have that piano sitting in my garage. It's all wrapped up. It doesn't get any usage anymore, but now think about this. She's four years old. 1926 is the year. My mom taught herself music. She taught herself how to read music. She also taught herself how to play by ear. And starting at the age of six, my mom began playing in church for the song service. And pretty much until she quit playing at the age of 85, she played almost every Sunday in church. Um, Just a couple other things. I'm just telling you this to illustrate why I don't have any excuse for not knowing how to play. Uh, My mom would always accompany my grandparents who quit counting at the 660th funeral that they sung for. Think about that, 600. And 60 funerals that they provided music for. My mom played for every one of them. I remember when I was a worship leader at my home church, uh, I would pick out the songs and we would start singing them. And if one song got a little bit out of my range, I would look over at my mom and she would look at me and she automatically knew what I was saying. And before the next verse would start, she would adjust it up or down a key, whichever the case may be, Without so much as batting an eye and make it comfortable for me, she, I mean, that's not easy to do. To just make that adjustment on the fly and go with it and not have it seem out of the ordinary. She was exceptional in that. I have no excuse not to know how to play the piano. I remember as a child my mom trying to give me piano lessons. Now, it quickly became apparent that I didn't have the grasp for it that she did. And it also quickly became apparent that she was not a teacher. She was a piano player. (laughs) Now, why she didn't have me take lessons from someone else, I'll never know. Today, I wish so badly that she would have made me do that. I wish I could play the piano just like she could. All of that to say that there are times that I just don't understand God. I can't figure out why God instilled in me such a love of music, gave me all the tools that I needed. A mother who could play the piano as well as anybody had that available to me, and yet I don't have the ability to sit down and play anything on the piano. Now, understand what I'm saying. I I wasn't wanting to be a concert pianist. I I would have just settled for just being able to sit down and hammer out a tune. But God seemed to have shortchanged me in that area. I have to confess to you today that I find that I'm often envious of those who still can play the piano. If I'm not careful, I can lose my focus during the worship service. 
and start envying Doug or Jacob when they sit down at the piano, wishing that I could do what they're doing. I can't imagine how great it would be to play like Doug Hibbs plays the piano. I'd love to be Michael W. Smith or Elton John or or Billy Joel, the piano man. I, I, I wouldn't even mind being able to play like Liberace without all the glimmer. <laughs> Just didn't happen. I watch and I listen to these people play the piano and I wish that I could do it like they do because it looks like it's so much fun and it looks like it's so easy to them. Now, I honestly do envy people who can play the piano. Say what you will, I'm guilty of envy. I envy people who can play the piano. And as I said earlier, envy is not pretty. I came across the words of a person whose name was Maxie Dunham. He is the retired president of Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. He says, and I quote, Envy is the sin that no one confesses. We'll confess to being proud, for example. Former President Jimmy Carter even confessed to lusting in his heart. We might as well confess to the sin of anger because it's so easy for others to see in us. But envy, that's another story. That one is so hard to admit. And Dunham goes on to say this, Envy is the sin of the evil eye. It always sees and desires what it doesn't have. Its punishment is that it will never have what it sees and desires because there will always be more to see than there is to possess. Wisest man who ever lived says in Proverbs chapter number 14, a tranquil or a sound heart is life to the body, but jealousy or envy is rottenness to the bone. Now, if you want to talk about the biblical chronology of sin, we all know that the first sin of Adam and Eve in the garden was the sin of pride. But did you know that envy was the second sin? And do you know how it manifested itself? Adam and Eve's offspring, two boys by the name of Cain and Abel. God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice but not so pleased with Cain's. And as a result, Cain's heart became filled with jealousy toward his brother Abel, so much so that he killed him because he was envious of his status before God. Paul writes to the Galatians and says this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. He says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. Those that practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, having given you that scripture, I can say this. I've yet to find the person that that's their favorite passage of scripture. 
Because within that passage of Scripture, every one of us have a finger pointed at us in some way, shape, or form because Paul just about covers it all there. And what he doesn't cover there, he covers in Romans chapter number 1. There he's talking about God's punishment of humankind because of their disobedience. And he says in verse 28 of Romans 1, because they did not think it worthwhile to have God in their knowledge, God delivered them over to a worthless or depraved mind to do what is morally wrong. Now, here is where he gives us a description of what he's talking about when he uses the term morally wrong. He says they're filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, disputes, deceit, and malice. Oh, he doesn't stop there. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant Proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, and merciful. Interesting to me that although there are descriptions of everything in Romans chapter 1 that we read from Galatians chapter number 5, the only one that is named by name only and not a description is the sin of envy. Envy. Let me just be really honest and transparent with you for a minute. I stood in this pulpit just a few moments ago and admitted to you that I am envious of Jacob and Doug and their ability to sit down at the piano and play whatever their, their heart desire. But you know what? You know how I feel better about myself having made that confession before all of you? Somehow or another, I can, I can look at myself and that confession and say, well, hey, that's not in the same league of sins like sorcery or drunkenness or carousing or definitely not murder or hatred or debauchery or outbursts of anger or being unloving or unmerciful. That's what I want to tell myself. But what I just read to you from black and white, from the Word of God, straight out of the Bible, tells me that I'm in more trouble than even what I thought. If indeed, I'm envious of what God can do through Jacob and Doug. Now obviously, that's not the place that I want to end my message. So I want you to go with me this morning to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, chapter number 18. 1 Samuel, chapter number 18. And while you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of context for this from 1 Samuel, chapter number 9. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it for you. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9 says, There was an influential man of Benjamin named Kish son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacoroth, son of Aphiah, son of a Benjamite. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he, Saul. He stood a head taller than anyone else. Now I want you to 
Go with me to that chapter number 18, and I want to begin reading for you, beginning with verse number 6. As David was returning from killing the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines with shouts of joy and with three-stringed instruments. As they celebrated, the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul was furious and resented this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but my kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. So let me go back and break all of that down for him. Chapter 9 said he's an impressive young man. Evidently, he had great looks, probably a winning personality. He was from a wealthy family. He'd been accepted by all of the, or he had been not accepted, but accorded all of the advantages that money could buy. And he had been selected by God to become the first king of the nation of Israel. Now you need to understand that God didn't do this just real willingly. God had told the people of Israel, you don't need a king. But the people of Israel said, everybody else has a king, we want a king. And so they kept crying and complaining about wanting a king so that they could be like everyone else. And God says, okay, a king you want, a king you shall have. And he picks out Saul. He's an impressive young man, the Scripture said. As king, Saul's word was going to be the law. You see, back in those days, the king was the supreme supreme person. It wasn't like today where we have a, a president or a prime minister and then everything has to be approved by Congress or Parliament, depending on where you're talking about. Back in those days, if a king said it, It was law. When he said jump, the only thing you responded to with was how high. His word was the law. He was the final earthly arbiter of the affairs of that that nation. But then this little runt of a kid, this little shepherd boy that nobody's ever heard of, he comes along and with with a lucky throw from his slingshot. He killed the giant that had been oppressing Saul and his armies for 40 days. And then to top that off, they go back to the city where the palace was and all the women from the surrounding cities come out and they're singing... Saul killed his thousands. David killed his ten thousands. And it became the number one record in Israel. It was number one for weeks. Everyone was singing it. And Saul could hear everyone singing it. And he became jealous or envious in his heart, and according to what we read from 1 Samuel chapter number 18, 
from the first time that he heard it, he began to seek out how he could get rid of David. Envy. It's not pretty. Now, the thing with envy, as we see in Cain's life, as we see now in Saul's life, is envy is not a sin unto itself. It leads to all sorts of other sins. I guess what I'm saying is, if I'm as envious as I am confessing to you that I might be about Jacob and Doug's piano playing ability, they may just have to start watching their back when they're walking out there in the hall. Obviously, you know I'm kidding. But just keep an eye out. <clears throat> Envy leads to all sorts of sins. Now, what I want to do with this this morning is I want to apply this to you, my life and to yours. And so to do that, let's just, let's just put some facts out there on the table. The facts are that there will always be somebody better than you and I. Are you okay with that? There's always going to be somebody smarter, someone better looking, someone richer, someone stronger, someone faster, someone more capable, and someone easier to get along with than you. Those, my friends, are facts. They're facts. No matter who you are, there is always someone out there who can do whatever you think you can do better than you can do it. If you're in the habit of always comparing yourself with others, the time's going to come when you will come out on the short end of that stick. It's just an inescapable fact of life. I used to think, for example, that there would be no better baseball player that ever lived than Mickey Mantle. Well, you know what? I found a couple of them by now. I used to think that there would be, I'm almost hesitant to mention this name, I always used to think that there would never be a running back greater than O.J. Simpson. (laughs) I guess we have to determine what we mean by better. I always thought that there would never be a basketball player better than Larry Bird. (laughs) Tara, I'm still looking for him, but someday he will appear. I have a lot of Jordan fans in my family. The problem is they never saw Wilt Chamberlain play basketball, amen? I just tell them, go look at the record books. Come back and we'll talk. There's always going to be somebody better. Always somebody with more ability than you have. Always somebody with the ability to carry out their ability better than you can. And it has the potential to create envy inside of us. If you find yourself being envious, did you know that you are sending a message to God that you might not be aware of? 
You are, if you're always comparing yourself to others and finding that you are envious of them or that you would like to be like they are, you are telling God in a not so subtle way that you don't think he created you as well as he could have. Never thought of it that way, did you? You're telling God that he didn't do good enough by you. Envy is a, is a way of denying God's creation. If you're envious of someone else, you're denying that God made you a person of worth and value in your own right, just the way that you are. Did you know that God created you just the way he wanted you to be? Now, I confess there are times when I have to say, God, why? Why? But God created every one of us exactly the way that he wanted us to be. Evidently, it wasn't in God's plan that I learned to play the piano. So what did God do instead? He gave me other talents and abilities. But even with those, there are many who have those same talents and abilities that do a much better job than I can with those abilities. What is it I'm trying to say to you? (laughs) You're telling God he could have done a better job. You are telling God, even though you're not aware that you're telling God this, you're telling God that you know better than he knows how you should have been. That's not a message you want to send to God, is it? I, I, I don't think that any of us think that, but that's the message that gets sent nevertheless. Now, envy is an emotion that refuses to recognize the goodness of God that has been unfolded upon each of us. God's love for us has been shown in so many extravagant ways, and yet when we fall into the trap of envy, we are denying the extravagance that God has shown toward us. Now, again, I'm going to ask the question, given all I've just said. Is God still good? Is he good to you? Absolutely he is. But envy is a way of telling God that we didn't think he did enough for us. So what do we do? Where do we go from here with that knowledge? Is there a plan of attack to rid ourselves of the sin of envy? Is there a way that we can turn our envy into a positive feeling and become content with us? Let me just stop there for a second. Did you know God wants you to be content with you? Uh, This is a huge, huge issue, folks. I mean, you may not, not think about this a lot. God wants you to be content with who you are. Remember, I told you he made you just the way he wanted to, right? So he wants you to be satisfied with who you are. Satisfied with the way that he made you. It it comes down to that concept, and and it's a huge issue in in the Christian realm today. Understanding who we are in Christ, and part of who I am in Christ, is being content with what God made me to be and to do. 
probably, I'm just guessing, I'm guessing that I probably will never have the opportunities that Billy Graham had, right? I'm probably never going to get the opportunity to preach to a crusade where there's 100,000 or 200,000 people. Now, I'd like that. I'd be nervous, but I'd like it. But that's not who God created me to be. God created me, for now at least, to be pastor of Trinity Faith Church. And I could say, well, man, I wish I was the pastor of a bigger church. I wish I was the pastor of a more passionate church. I I wish I was the pastor of a church that, that was really impacting their community in ways that get headlines. You see where this can go? That's not who God created me to be, at least at this point in my life. And I'm guessing at this point in my life from here on, I'm not going to get some of those opportunities that I just mentioned. That's okay. You know why? Because I'm happy with me. God wants us to be happy with ourselves. He wants us to have a healthy self-image. He wants us to have a good self-esteem. I do a reasonable amount of counseling, both individual and marital counseling. Do you know what I find in most people's lives that cause them to have to need counseling to deal with the issues that they're going through in their life? Lack of self-esteem. They don't feel good about themselves. I'm here to tell you this morning, friends, if we serve a good God and we believe that God created us just as He wanted, there is ample reason for us to feel good about us. Thanks, Jenny. Let me say it again for the rest of you to hear. If we serve a good God, if we believe that we serve a good God, and we believe that God created us in His image just the way that He wanted us, there is ample reason for us to feel good about us. God wants you to feel good about yourself. You know why? Because if you don't feel good about yourself, the chances are really good you're not going to feel good about anybody else. And that is proven by Saul and David. Did David's killing of Goliath mean that Saul was no longer a good military general? No. It meant that God sent this shepherd boy, David, for such a time as that to do a job that no one else was able to do at that time. Do you know why they weren't able to do it? It wasn't because they weren't as good with a slingshot. It wasn't because they didn't have as good a military mind as a young shepherd boy. It was because God had to find a shepherd boy who would go forth in the power and the might of Almighty God. David and his slingshot did not kill the giant. That was the means by which God used David to kill the giant. It was the power and the might of Almighty God. And David's trust in his almighty and good God. 
that brought the giant down. And yet Saul couldn't visualize it in those terms. He looked at David as being a threat to the position that God had given him. And look at, I mean, from that day forward, he sought to kill David. He threw javelins at him. He had more opportunities over the next years to kill David, and he, he took advantage of every one of them. And it wasn't that David was so smart and so good that he was able to escape him. It's that a good God was protecting David because he had a plan and purpose for David once King Saul was out of the way. Are you with me? There's plenty of reason for Saul to still feel good about himself. After all, God had anointed him to be the king. But because of envy, he started thinking, well, I can't trust God anymore, so I'm going to start getting counsel from witches. I, I, I can't trust God to, to deliver all the enemies of Israel at my hand. And I'm certainly not going to rely on this little runt of a shepherd from the backside of the Judean wilderness to come and get all the accolades that I should be receiving. How do we overcome them? That's where I was, wasn't it? Three suggestions. First and foremost, reignite your love for God if you are experiencing feelings of envy of any kind. Recognize God's love, His mercy, His forgiveness, His tenderness, His care, His goodness, and accept yourself as being God's creation just the way He wanted you to be. By the way, in His goodness, He doesn't make mistakes. So no matter what the flaw might be that you think you have, God made you the way he wanted you to be. And you know, you know how the kingdom of God works? This may take a while, so I'm going to sit down. <clears throat> Do you know how the kingdom of God works? The various members of the body working together. If one member, say a, a toe decides he wants to take over the responsibility of being the brain, you're going to have a problem. If you have a little finger that, or let's just say a body member whose job it is in the real world of cleaning bathrooms, but you see that the one who's standing behind the pulpit gets more attention than your cleaning of the bathrooms. Do you think that it's going to work to let the bathroom cleaner come stand behind the pulpit? Are you with me? The body of Christ jointly fit together, each one doing what God has created them individually to do carries out the plan of God. Maybe I should say that again because I didn't hear much. The body of Christ jointly fit together, 
Each one doing what God created them uniquely to do brings about the kingdom of God. I'll take that as a mediocre response. Do you remember back in the first chapter of Genesis? It tells us that when God saw everything that he had made, what did he do? He said it was very good. He said it was very good. We are a part of that. We are a part of that creation. We are a part of the universe that God has called very good. No one, nothing can take that away from us. No one or nothing can make bad what God has called very good. If we recognize, and again, this is the first way to overcome envy. I'm still on number one. (laughs) If we recognize that we have innate goodness in us as a part of God's creation, then there's no reason to want to be something or someone else. Just do what God can equip you to do. Now, here's the second one, and it's probably my favorite. Use the brain that God gave you. I know, mouths flying open all over the kid. <laughs> you say, well, pastor, I would like to have the fame and the fortune of Tiger Woods or Bill Gates or the CEO of General Motors. You know what? They have unique qualifications. I'm doubting that even Steve over here and Steve back there have ever worked as hard to be Tiger Woods as Tiger Woods has. Right? Now, these guys are good golfers. I've golfed with them. But they're not Tiger Woods. Sorry, Steve. (laughs) He's not you. That's right. But you know what? Being Tiger Woods or Bill Gates or the CEO of General Motors... It comes with a whole whole other set of problems that you may not want to have that they have. You would. Be content with being you. God created every one of us with his or her own set of positives and negatives. So use the abilities that God has given you to reason, and then you'll be able to see the real facts of the matter. And finally, even though I said the second one was my favorite, this is the one I'm most thankful for. Finally, the best way that you can get to the root of the sin of envy is to rely on the strength of Jesus Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? Did you know that you can't fight any sin on your own? You have to have the power of God. You have to have the power of God to fight sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God will with the temptation make it possible for you to bear up against the temptation. Because, why? God is faithful. God is faithful to fight sin On your behalf because he knows that we can't do it on our own. 
Jesus provides us with mercy, forgiveness, grace, and power to overcome our sinful ways. And we need to claim that power, which was claimed by the Apostle Paul. Oh, by the way, what I'm getting ready to tell you is not written in the Bible as a means by which you to get, think that you can get everything that you need. It says, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. He will supply what you need according to his riches in glory. It's not your rubber stamp to name it and claim it and call it a blue light special like Kmart has. It's your responsibility to allow Jesus Christ to supply you with the things that you really need. Things like overcoming and overpowering the tendency to sin. Overcoming, at least for today, the tendency to envy what someone else has. Jacob and the worship team comes. Let me close by saying I have an assignment for you. If you have found yourself being prone to look at yourself as being something less than somebody else, that God has done better with somebody else than what he's done with you, I have an assignment for you that I want you to practice, especially as we enter into Thanksgiving season. And it's simply this. It's very easy. Take a minute or two each day and think about the ways that you've been blessed by God. You have been blessed by God. And think about, for those few minutes, about the gifts that God has given you. Gifts that somebody else may not have, but you have them. Instead of always looking at what you don't have in comparison to what someone else has, Start considering what you have that God didn't bless somebody else with. It'll change you. I promise you, it'll change you. Think about for a minute all of the ways that God has worked in your life. And then ask yourself why you would have any reason at all to be envious of anybody else. I guarantee you, friends, if you're honest with yourself and honest with God, and you start recounting all the blessings that God has given just to you, just to you, there will be no more reason to envy what God has given to somebody else. It'll help you discover a new sense of self-worth. It'll make you happy to be you. The old envy bug will die away and you'll live more contentedly within the love and the grace of our God. Is God good? All the time or just when he's good to you? I thought so. All the time. And I close with this statement. What I know about each one of you may not be very much, but what I do know is this. God did a good job when he made you. He did a good job when he made you. 
Lord Jesus, your goodness is so apparent in so many ways, so many levels of our lives. And God, I don't know whether anything that I've said this morning about envy has struck a nerve in anyone's life in this room, but I have to guess that it probably has, else you would not have laid this upon my heart. Lord, I guess I know it strikes a familiar chord in my heart. God, I still wish I could play the piano. But I thank you for the gifts that you have given me the ability to do. I thank you for the blessings that you brought to my life, uniquely to my life. And Lord, today, I just want to tell you I'm content. I'm content with what you've given me. You give me some of the blessings that you've given to everyone else. It brings a whole unique set of problems that I don't have to experience today. So God, I'm content with me this morning. And Holy Spirit, as you move through this congregation this morning, you're doing a work of examination of each heart and life in this room today. And Lord, it's not so much that I'm concerned about the enormous amount of envy that may take place in this congregation. That's not my concern because I don't think there's a big amount of envy. But I am concerned a lot about people in this congregation who have a poor self-image, who suffer from a lack of esteem, who suffer from a lack of being contented, just the way that you've made them. I pray for people in this room, Lord, who are always taking upon themselves your role when they look at others and say, well, if you could only do this, then you'd be better. God, if there be any root of that in this room this morning, I pray that you would eradicate it from us in this moment in your presence. Lord, when we start singing songs like Reckless Love, it contains words that maybe we don't understand. But Lord, in my own life, I know that it was reckless for you to take chances on me when I didn't deserve those chances. There were times in my life, Lord, when you gave love to me and in doing so, it was so reckless on your part because I may not live up to the expectations that came along with being a recipient of your love. And Lord, I say that this morning because I want this congregation to understand that your love is overwhelming. It's reckless. Lord, you are, your love is so amazing and you are so good that you are willing to leave 99 who are already in the fold to go find that one who has wandered away recklessly I might add because you're not content that any should perish 
Holy Spirit, do your work in this room this morning. Do your work in this room. It's here in your presence, Lord, that we can be changed. We can become and we can live out all that you created each of us uniquely to be. If we'll just lay all of our presuppositions down about how we ought to be instead of how we are. Or if I could only be like so-and-so instead of like me. We lay all that junk down this morning, Jesus. Because we want you to do a work in us. I wasn't going to do this this way this morning, but I, I, I just feel the Spirit leading me to do it. Your head's bowed, your eyes closed. If you're here this morning, you're suffering from a poor self-image of yourself. Lack of self-esteem. Lack of confidence in the person that God created you to be. And so you feel the need to always wear a mask so that you cover up the real you and seem to be someone else. God wants to help you with that this morning. That's you. I want you to just quietly raise a hand to heaven. Not so much tell me, but tell Jesus. I see hands over on my left. I see a hand in the center. I see a hand on my right. Anyone else, anywhere? Now just one more question. Your heart's desire is to be what God created you to be. Raise that hand up this morning. That's all you want to be is what God created you to be. Nothing more, nothing less. Hands all over the room. Yes, thank you. Well, thank you, Jesus, for letting me preach to the right people this morning. And now, Lord, as we, we close this service, it's, it's now, God, what time is it? It's, wow, it's 12.06. Yeah, I know the football games are coming on. And I know the roast is in the oven. But you're more important than any of those things. And so if it requires some time for you to just come before God, we're going to stand to our feet here in just a moment. We're going to sing the song that Jacob and the worship team are playing. We're going to recognize God's beauty, His sovereignty. The fact that He's good that he makes no mistakes, go ahead, stand to your feet. And we're going to praise him for it. And along with that, we're going to say, God, this is what I need from you this morning. I want to start feeling good about me. I want to start feeling as good about me as you feel good about me so that I can be all that you created me to be. Let's sing it, shall we? Here in your presence.